This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. All right, good afternoon. Uh, Welcome to the library. We're going to go ahead and get started. Um, This event is entitled uh, The Iraq War uh, Panel Reconvened. And before we get into it, I want to just do a quick kind of history of where we've been. Um, Four years ago, over four years ago now, uh, the current administration was starting to do a lot of uh, saber-rattling about Iraq and about Saddam Hussein. So around January of 2003, we had decided to do a panel discussion about uh, just war and about um, how war should be waged and how war should be used. Through eerie coincidence, the day that we scheduled to have the event was March 19th, which was the afternoon that the U.S. started bombing Baghdad. And as you can imagine, we had a couple hundred people here interested in the topic, and we had a very healthy discussion. And um, so now it's four years later, and we've brought our panel member back, panel members back together to, uh, to carry on the discussion and see where we've been in four years, what the current state of our country's foreign policy and, um, and our relationships with the Middle East, where that stands. I'll do quick introductions. Um, at the end is Mary Fifleese. She's the coordinator of global education and a professor of history. Uh, to her left is uh, Bill Droll, who's going to act as our moderator today. Bill's a longtime member of our campus community, serving as um, campus minister, and uh, he writes for the Glacier, and he, does, and he teaches some philosophy and humanities classes. And to his left is Darren Shrek, who, sorry for hiding Darren from everybody. <laughs> Darren's uh, a professor of uh, political science, and, uh, and so we're, we're excited to have everyone here. And the, the last member who's not able to be here uh, four years ago was um, Professor Zabib. Uh, this last week, uh, there was a, a bit of a uh, fall that Professor Zabib had, and he's recovering, so he's not able to be here today. Uh, but clearly, we're thinking about him and, and hoping that he gets well. So with that, I will turn it over to our panel and to Bill. And I think uh, throughout, we're going to encourage um, some questions at different points. So as you get questions, jot those down, and uh, you'll get opportunities to ask. So thanks for coming, and um, I appreciate it. And here you go. Troy, thanks for hosting us. Uh, it's pretty amazing that we're all still working here. <laughs> it's a I, good thing. I, I didn't know you were going to make it. As Troy mentioned, it was uh, it was quite eerie uh, four years ago. The uh, timing was such that uh, within hours of this panel discussion, there was the initial bombing of Paradise of Baghdad. Uh, the library had not been remodeled at that time, so we were over where the magazines are, and uh, we had a, a very large crowd. It was very topical at the time, and uh, our purpose this morning is not to rehash what we talked about four years ago and to look back and see if our predictions were accurate or not accurate. Uh, we're not going to uh, do that this morning, nor are we going to uh, pontificate, giving advice to policymakers. Uh, there's a lot of that going on in the news and a lot of it going on in Congress, quite appropriately so. Uh, we're not going to do that. What we are going to do instead is try to take a step forward or take a step back, however you want to think about it, and take a look at the bigger picture and lift up some of our thoughts and questions about what this war means and will mean for the United States, for the Middle East, for Europe, uh, for Islam, for neoconservative Christianity, for Asia, and and more. We're going to try to uh, give it some perspective, a bigger picture. And as a backdrop, we're going to uh, use the novel 1984 by George Orwell because that's the one book, one college uh, selection of our library uh, for fall 06 and spring 07. So we're going to make reference to 1984. If you're at all familiar with the novel, you know that uh, one of the main themes of the novel is that war is peace, the idea of perpetual war, uh, that totalitarianism is a preferred form of governance and reigns supreme, 
and that the media is an instrument of propaganda in Oceania. That's one of the big themes of the book. So those, those are quite appropriate uh, backdrops, I think, for our discussion of the war in Iraq. And uh, we're going to fade in and out of Orwell's 1984 as we proceed this afternoon. Uh, I'm going to ask each of our panel members to make some general comments, and then uh, we'll entertain some questions. And if things uh, slow down, it's my job to agitate the panel members and the uh, audience. So with that, uh, maybe I'll start. Mary, you want to tell us what you're thinking? Um, okay, well, first of all, I'm, I'm happy to be here, even though Bill's surprised that I'm still here. <laughs> it's, it's good to be here. Um, it's, it's sad that we're sitting here four years later, but I have to say it's really not all that surprising. Um, I was just talking about this with my students in, uh, in the world since 1945 yesterday, History 105. I throw in a little plug there for History 105, but we were talking about uh, conflict in, in the former Yugoslavia, and specifically the conflict in Bosnia, and how when we first sent in, in uh, uh, peacekeeping troops into Bosnia, you know, the Americans, the media, and other politicians were saying we need to get in there and get out of there six months to a year. Um, when George W. Bush became president, one of his uh, original ideas was to withdraw troops from Bosnia. Well, there are still troops in Bosnia. That conflict ended in 1995. There are still troops there today, 12 years later. Um, and I remember saying that anybody who thinks that going in and out of Iraq in six months is going to be an easy proposition is pretty much deluding themselves. As we can see, we are still there. Um, there doesn't seem to be an easy way out of this. Um, and so, yeah, it's, 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 it's one of those things where, you, as you said, we don't want to be talking about how we're, we were right, but in a way, it's sad to be proven right. Um, and I think that that has a lot to do with our own, and I hate to be overly critical, I, I'm, but we're, our, over, our short-sightedness as, as a people. And I don't know if that's just a product of capitalism in general um, or if it's just perhaps specifically true to the American people, but we tend to kind of have this, we tend to think short-term. And that's what we've done with pretty much all the conflicts that we've, we've waged in the past you know, 40 or so years. Um, and so I think it's, it's hopefully we're going to learn some lessons from that. I don't think we have so far, but hoping we will. Jaron, you want to? I'm reminded, I'm reminded of, a, uh, of a paper or an essay that I wrote when I was an undergraduate in college. And it, it was a free, uh, free answer, a free topic that we, we could have chosen any topic that we wanted to and that we had to answer based on the topic that we had chose in our own way. And I chose the, the topic that the United States would be different if, um, if Abraham Lincoln didn't change his vice president <laughs> from Hannibal Hamlin to Andrew Johnson. And if you know anything about the period after uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, died, there was a lot of problems with uh, the Republican Party and Andrew Johnson. And I said, in so many words, the, the country would have been a whole lot different. And the professor... Uh, came back with a grade that I couldn't understand why he gave me a grade so low. And he told me, I like your premise, but you didn't explain how things would change. All you did was say that things would change, but you didn't tell me how. Mm -hmm. And so I think for the last four years, we focused too much on the past, saying that, well, things would be a whole lot better if John Kerry would be president. Or things would have been a whole lot better if George Bush didn't become president. Or uh, in 2000. Or uh, things are going to be a whole lot better now that the Democrats have control of Congress. And yet nobody's answering the question, well, how? How would it be different? We're just making some basic statements. And I think what we're going to see in the next two years and in the 2008 election is that both Democrats and Republicans have to answer some questions that if you have a solution, what is it? Mm -hmm. If you uh, disagree, then why do you disagree? You just can't get up on a pedestal and say, well, I disagree with this administration. And then you also have to look at, we as a, a public have to look at the responses that our elected leaders, both Democrats and Republicans, are giving. We have to ask the question, well, if you have a solution, how will you put that into practice? Or are you just giving me talking points to get elected into office? We're also going to look, we also have to look at the role of the media. The media has taken 
uh, its fair shots and not being a watchdog. Some people say that they were a lapdog for the administration and not doing its job. And we also have to look at how the elections of 2008 are, gonna uh, are going to uh, uh, be affected by this war. You have some candidates who have voted in favor of the war in Iraq and now have apologized. You have some candidates who will not apologize. And you've had some candidates who weren't even in office who have taken a stand for or against the war. So we have to look at the impact of how this war is going to play out as well in our elections. Uh, Mary, uh, over 20 years ago, uh, Senator Joe Biden from Delaware was a visitor to our campus, and I was very impressed by him then. He's had some uh, setbacks since. Uh, maybe, maybe coming to Moraine wasn't a good idea. Uh, but uh, he has of late been floating the idea that there ought to be a partition of Iraq and that uh, maybe we ought not be thinking of it as a single unified country, that there ought to be three countries and that the United Nations ought to uh, patrol the borders of those countries for a period of time and then gradually pull out and in, in a sense uh, return to the pre-World War One boundaries in the Middle East as far as Iraq is, is concerned. And so that's one example of somebody who's, who's got a how. I, I just would appreciate your, uh, if you've heard of his idea and what you think of it. The idea of partitioning Iraq. Yeah. That's something that's being floated around quite a bit now, uh, the idea of partitioning. And, you know, I, to be honest with you, I'm not quite sold either way. On the one hand, <clears throat> Partitioning may not necessarily be a bad idea. On the other hand, it's, it's a little bit scary because that seems to be who's going to partition it, um, who's going to be responsible for it. Because if you, if you look at the way that, that um, major foreign powers, and this is before the U.S. was a major power. We're talking about the British, the French, uh, the Germans, uh, the Portuguese, kind of went in and carved up different places like Africa and like the Middle East. And in the Middle East, it was largely the British and the French. And they basically just arbitrarily Say a little more about lines. that. How, how did Iraq come to be what it is today? Well, it, it was basically the whole Middle East was carved up at, at, at the end of, of World War I with the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. And you had the, the British and the French that largely just carved up lines that were going to suit them, not really taking into consideration the peoples that were living there. A very similar thing was done in Africa as well. It didn't matter if you were putting two different groups of people that necessarily didn't get along, as long as it suited that, that colonial power. Um, and so while I, I don't necessarily, th I think that partitioning has got its merits. On the other hand, we've partitioned places like Bosnia. Um, it's been about 12 years or so. It, it seem, it's still relatively peaceful, but that's because the UN peacekeepers are still there. Actually, I should say that uh, European Union uh, troops are now in place there. Um, it's kind of, I think, too early to tell, even if that's been a success. So unless we have the UN that's willing to offer troops, and I should say, when we say the UN, we have to acknowledge that it's these five major countries on the Security Council, the US, the UK, uh, France, China, and Russia, if they're willing to commit troops to a peacekeeping effort, um, then perhaps maybe it, ha it has a shot, but that's gonna be long-term, and our, do we have the political will to commit troops to such a long-term effort? And that I don't know. As, as, as Professor Fafleese mentioned, that partitioning has happened many times in, in world history. And one time that, that comes to my mind is when, uh, when Poland actually was divided up four different times by, uh, by Russia. And uh, the Polish people for quite some time had to combat not only uh, their neighbors to the west and, and to the south, but also their neighbors to the east and, and being the, with the Russian, the, uh, the Russian Empire. Mm -hmm. Uh, partitioning, and, and as Professor Joel pointed out, the, what Joe Biden is coming up with is a solution. To be a cynic, on the other hand, I don't, un, I don't know if people could grasp that idea as easily as someone saying, well, if we send 25,000, see, there's a number. Mm -hmm. We could say 25,000. We can understand that. Or if we say, we're going to bring all of the troops home tomorrow. Oh, tomorrow. I understand what tomorrow means. Tomorrow means right away. But if we say something about partitioning, it comes into the question of who's going to partition it? Will the people of Iraq, and you have to remember you're dealing with three major groups of people, the Kurds, the Shias, and, and the Sunnis, 
who would then have to go along with this partitioning as well. And that's difficult. Darren, I was going to ask then, um, I guess we knew that four years ago that there were at least three major groups there, mm -hmm. but it seemed, well, it's, you know, but it, it, the point is that it, it, it didn't seem like they were uh, so factious because uh, there was some unity at that time. Am I, am I right? Uh, and what was, hold, what was holding it together? Why well, was there an Iraq for so long? And Saddam Hussein's brutal dictatorship basically kind of kept, kept that all under wraps. Um, so it sounds like you're, you're alluding to the idea the same way that we talked about the former Yugoslavia, that the rule of Marshal Tito kept all those different mm -hmm. ethnic tensions from, from brewing. And once that, that leadership was removed, you had a political vacuum that now exists in Iraq, and, and some will say that, that our invasion of Iraq was the best thing that could have happened to those that wanted to stir up trouble. Um, at the same time, I'm not, I'm not arguing that Saddam Hussein was a good guy and that therefore he, that he should have been brought back, and I'm not arguing that at all. Um, but it just, it, it certainly seems that when you have artificial boundaries that are an artificial country that's created, in order to keep all those boundaries intact and keep those people together, Sometimes it requires that strong central figure to do that, and that does not really exist in Iraq right now. And it, to make a, let's say, just a positive idea here, um, out of the three groups that I mentioned, probably the only group that would agree with the partitioning is the Kurdish mm -hmm. people, because they believe that their land is, is independent and free to begin with. So they would probably welcome being a free and independent Kurdistan, mm -hmm. which then comes into the question of, well, then what do you do with Turkey? Because they believe some of that land is also theirs. Mm -hmm. and, and it just starts to spiral from there. So there really is no easy solution to just saying we're going to partition the country. Some comments from the audience or questions? We, we, we don't need to have a formal question and answer period if mm -hmm. there's some initial questions or comments. I, w I was going to uh, return us to the novel a little bit, 1984, uh, that slogan, War is Peace. Uh, it seems to me one of the big picture questions uh, that we're faced with now is, is whether or not really war is effective anymore. Mm -hmm. We've thought for centuries that at a certain point, uh, uh, although always regrettable, that war served a purpose and that there would be a an outcome from a war that would uh, serve the greater good. But it, I, I think that it's legitimate to ask whether, whether war is really useful anymore. So is, is war becoming obsolete? Obsolete. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's, I don't know if I can necessarily address that, but I can address it as it pertains to Iraq. Was war effective in Iraq? And it doesn't really appear to be so. Well, I guess it depends on your perspective. If you're coming from... Um, those that are agitating in Iraq, then perhaps war was effective for them. But in terms of for our purposes, was war effective in getting us what we wanted? Um, I'm still not quite clear what we wanted to begin with. I'll be perfectly honest with you. The, the reasons change so often that I'm still not quite clear what our purpose was. If it was for oil, well, the oil prices don't really seem to have been affected, so it doesn't really seem to be about that. If it was for trying to send a message to countries like Iran that we wanted to scare them a little bit, that message doesn't seem to be really effective because Iran has been more emboldened than ever. Um, so I'm not quite sure. If it, I certainly would argue that in our case, war was not really effective in, in justifying whatever it is that we wanted. <laughs> I was thinking, Mary, since the Second World War, a lot of the big changes in our world have come about because of nonviolence, mm -hmm. have come about uh, through various nonviolent movements, the toppling of communism, uh, mm -hmm. reform in the Philippines, mm -hmm. uh, change in Haiti. Uh, all these things in were uh, accomplished without resort to violence or war. And, and that's why I'm wondering, maybe in the, in the nuclear age, whether uh, war is of limited use anymore in furthering the, uh, the ambitions of the aggressor even, and, and certainly of the common good. No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know. If it, I, I don't have a clear answer if war is effective, but I think war has changed. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the fighting of wars have changed in the last 50 years. Uh, there was a clear defined enemy during World War I and World War II. And uh, you knew the boundaries. You knew where the, uh, the rules of engagement were. Uh, with Korea, similar to that as well. And with Vietnam, you also knew that. And uh, the difference with Vietnam than the, other previous, than the previous wars were that 
you had a group of people perhaps in South Vietnam or even in North Vietnam who, you know, really didn't care if there were the communists would actually control their territory. That there wasn't this burgeoning excitement amongst the people to fight alongside uh, the Allies or to fight alongside the United States. And with this war in Iraq and with the, the larger scale war on terror, there is no clear defined enemy. There is no clear defined, let's say in terms of an enemy, there's no clear defined country and there's no clear defined border and who, where you're fighting and who you're fighting. And the rules of engagement do not apply to a group of people who do not recognize a country that they are fighting for. So yeah, it's hard to imagine what the peace table would mm-hmm. look like and who would be there. Well, who would they represent? They would yeah. probably be representing themselves, themselves, which is what they're doing now. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, I was uh, intrigued by a story in the South Town uh, a day or two ago. There are in the vicinity of our college a couple of uh, wholesalers who deal in patriotic magnets, patriotic uh, ribbons, flags, uh, other kinds of uh, things like that. And uh, immediately following the attack four years ago, uh, these businesses were booming. And in fact, uh, some of them found it uh, interesting enough, lucrative enough to set up uh, little uh, little uh, drive by the uh, gas station and other places you could pull in and get different kinds of uh, car flags and different. But the story was that uh, now they are stockpiling all of these uh, memorabilia and. and symbols because there's not a demand. They have overproduced magnets, they've overproduced ribbons, they've overproduced flags, and and they're just stockpiling them. I I found it um, interesting because I I think at one point we equated supporting the troops with supporting the policy. And now that public opinion has turned and people don't support the policy, uh, maybe, this is my hypothesis, maybe people are ambivalent then about uh, displays of, of uh, flags and displays of mm-hmm. uh, ribbons and those kinds of things. I, I'm not sure what it all means, but, but once we made that easy equation between supporting the troops and supporting the policy, uh, I think we, we open the door to other problems. And, and I would just be curious if you have any reaction to it. We're a very forgetful people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we don't know our own history, uh, let alone what we did yesterday. Uh, we don't understand, perhaps, that when our country was formed, we had something, and I mentioned, I remember talking about this four years ago, we had something called the Articles of Confederation, which was a big failure. But the intent was to actually get the states moving along and let them become independent from each other. And it turned out that that was essentially letting the kids run the house without any parents around. And in the last four years, we've looked at this war policy, and and I think perhaps whether or not you're in favor of the president, whether or not you're in favor of a Republican Party or whoever is in charge, I think we just get tired of hearing the same old stories over and over. Whether or not we're winning or losing, we kind of just get bored with it and say, okay, what's next? Mm -hmm. And in terms of, you know, selling merchandise, we we get tired of that. Everything, you know, for lack of a better phrase, has a shelf life. And the media also recognizes that everything has a shelf life as well. And their intention is to sell newspapers and to get people to read the blogs and get people to read their internet columns and to get radio programs listened to and television shows viewed. And so in the last few days, or actually yesterday, there was a story about uh, Mm -hmm. a a library or a reading area that was bombed uh, in Iraq, and there were no American soldiers there, and there were no Iraqi fighters there. It was just a place of higher learning. And for somebody who is in higher learning, that bothers me. And yet, what bothered me probably even more was that it was on page 13. 
and yet we're still concerned with is Anna Nicole Smith's body going to be moved from the Bahamas to Texas and we find this to be newsworthy all of a sudden and then sooner or later we're going to forget about that and go on to something new and all the while there will be a war going on and yet again the media will sit there and say because they've been under target for the last four years of not doing their job They'll try to compensate for that by saying, okay, we're going to do our job now. Two people died yesterday. See, we're telling you the news. <laughs> Twelve people died uh, two days before that. See that? We're going to show you numbers, and then that will show you that we actually care about what's going on. But we'll put that on page seven because we know you're bored with that as well. So everything has a shelf life. Unfortunately, this war will continue on in one way or another if there isn't a clear-cut solution developed by uh, by our politicians who we entrust to do what's good for the common the common good the students here this morning I suppose are the exceptions they they're still interested in this topic even though it's not unless some of you are here by uh, compulsion I don't suppose that's that's the case huh? <laughs> taking attendance or something um, I, I do I as before Derek even spoke I started writing down the same thing we've moved on. Our, our, um, our consciousness and our consciousness, our, our society, and this goes back to what I was saying when I, in the opening that we're the type of we move on right away as soon as the story gets old. You know, we'd rather talk as Darren said about astronauts and diapers and and Nicole Smith than we would about things that really directly impact us more. And maybe that's because at, at the heart of it, we're afraid to face those things because if you face those things, you have to, have to you have to start really having some serious discussions about mistakes that we make. If if we if if government represents us. We're kind of allowing them to kind of run roughshod over all this and not really stepping up and saying too much about it. Um, yeah, it, it this definitely goes back to the, the idea of our, our lack of uh, being able to, to, to be farsighted, too. And again, going back to Vietnam, you know, the Vietnamese were people that looked at conflict in terms of 100 years. We looked in conflict in terms of the next year, if even that. We're always kind of putting band-aids on bullet holes. And it's not just about our, about our policy, war-making policy. It's about our society in general. We tend to be the instant gratification, you know, kind of, you know, not really addressing the long-term problem. Let's just put a short-term solution to it and see if it fixes it. And it doesn't. We are, um, um, we're not preventive in our health. We're not preventive in our diplomacy. And these are things that I think we really need to be addressing and having those debates. But, again, it doesn't also help, too, when the media does show things like the Anna Nicole Smith story or the astronaut story. Mm -hmm. However, um, I did uh, grab a copy of uh, Newsweek from this past week. And those of you that perhaps have seen it, it's a, it's a picture of a soldier, a female soldier, who's lost both of her legs uh, below the knee. Um, they're talking about the title, Shattered in Body and Mind, Too Many Veterans Are Facing Poor Care and Red Tape, Why We're Failing Our Wounded. Um, I'm sure some of you have been perhaps keeping up with a story, and I don't Walter know if I'm jumping Reed. on here, yeah. of the Walter yeah, Reed yeah, issue. Yeah, um, and that, to me, is just disgusting. I'm angry about it, angry beyond belief, because if you, I, I, we had a, um, the history department hosted some veterans here from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, uh, the Persian Gulf War, and the current war in Iraq, and, and we had a veteran from Afghanistan, too, um, for Veterans Day. And the, world, the Vietnam veterans still carry this, this stigma over the way that they were treated after, after Vietnam. And it wasn't just being spat upon when they came no, home. No, it, was no. it was the long term. Right. It was that, too. But it was also right. the fact that they were kind of neglected. Yeah. World War II, we treated our veterans better than any war that we've ever treated them before. Vietnam was despicable, and it looks like we haven't gotten too much better. So we still haven't learned those lessons. We're I'd still be, failing the most important people. I'd be curious, how many have a, a friend in the armed services? In the, and h how many would have somebody stationed in Iraq? A friend. I had a friend. Uh huh. So those those relationships ought to be uh, dear enough that uh, the topic stays on your minds. I, I would hope, mm -hmm. huh? And the, I remember the Vietnam veteran, say, one of the Vietnam veterans, saying that until, and and this is a horrible thing to say, but until enough people are affected, till they lose family members or friends that's when the American people will stand up and start to make some noise. And they're starting to do that now. Um, 
I, I could tell you just from personal experience, I had a friend who died in Iraq. Uh, I remember talking about this when we were here four years ago. Um, he had served in Bosnia and, and in Kosovo. He was in the National Guard from Pennsylvania. And he uh, died of a, he had a blood clot that went straight to his, to his brain and killed him. Um, and to me, it's just as horrible as if he died in combat because he died because of the circumstances under which he was there. And I know that it's probably emotional. Someone may accuse me of being too idealistic or emotional, but we tend to neglect the human cost of war. We tend to neglect this. When we talk about the ideas of patriotism and stirring people up, this is the result of what happens when you send people out there without a clear imperative or without a, without a clear understanding of what the situation is on the ground. And it, 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 it and I apologize, I'm getting a little too, mm -hmm. but um, we still haven't learned that lesson. We've got a question. Oh, a couple questions. Mm -hmm. It seems like there's not the necessary outrage coming from the younger generation nowadays, and I don't know if that has to do with the media or just today, the society, but it really is a shame. At least back in Vietnam, you had outrage on the campuses, and people were talking about it. People are still talking about it nowadays, but it's like you guys said, it gets old after a while, mm -hmm. and that's a shame. And people mm -hmm. really still need to, I think, Thank you. I agree. Yeah. And and study. I mean, this is a good this is a good turnout uh, this afternoon. So this is good to keep people. Well, I am an instructor here. Nice and loud. So, and I think it's just, I think also that we're competing with so many other things that are, are oh, did everyone miss the question? Yeah. You've got to repeat the question. Okay, so the, the question was basically the, uh, Carrie Millsap Spears, uh, excellent instructor of communication here on campus, was talking about how her students are reading, the, is it the graphic novel, the, um, V for Vendetta, and how one of the characters in, in the story just it becomes very desensitized to seeing body parts all over the place, just kind of kicking them out of the way. And she was asking if, if that was kind of what I was, I was referencing to. And I, I, think that that, I think that's definitely part of it. We are used to kind of wholesale violence just being all over our TVs. But also I think that we're competing, as that young man just pointed out, we're competing with so many other interests. You know, I think that the differences, and I don't want to generalize completely, if you were look, to look at the world war, the, the Vietnam generation, um, I think that the generation today has so much, I don't want to say there's so much more going on, but I think in terms of they have so many other things that can distract them mm -hmm. from, from things like this. Because we have things like your iPods, and your, and which kind of also feeds into 1984 with, with uh, technology, um, so many other available resources to get information, and it just becomes all a bunch of noise after a while. Well, propaganda and the media has gotten a lot more efficient nowadays, so it's easier to kind of start kids at a younger age watching television or come to places. Like, and like we mentioned with Vietnam, are you saying like a route, like what the agenda of the Weather Underground did? And they were all educated oh, individuals, one of the professors around the Chicago area, Northwestern, University of Chicago, yeah. blowing up you know, government buildings, not harming an individual simply to get the point across to bring the war home. And then at the point, they'll throw their excuse entirely because the government got caught with their hands on their hands. So, the, the question is, uh, can Mary clarify what she means by uh, uh, the, the uh, Vietnam, the interest around the Vietnam War, and is uh, violence ever justified in making 
making your your intentions known. Is that right? Sam, are you asking like why why we haven't seen more groups like yeah, that? We haven't seen as much agitation. There's more cynicism, I think, in mm-hmm. today's culture, and it's just kind of more complacency in that sense. Mm-hmm. And, and okay, and where are the intellectual? Acts like that justifiable. To yeah. Really bring it to the front page. I don't think so. I don't think those acts are necessarily justifiable. I think you can get your voice heard without having to resort to violence. And I know it sounds very idealistic, but I think you can. And I think people like Martin Luther King proved it. Gandhi proved it. Um, that you don't necessarily have to go. Vi- although, although we've talked about before, there are there are lots of groups who have used violence uh, to that have have been effective. But I still think that you can make your voice heard without it. Or you were. Oh, go ahead. Go, no, it's okay. You were also mentioning about distractions and, and uh, in, in a way of how many people actually get involved in, in war protest or actually speak out against the war or in favor of the war. Uh, if you ever watch an anti-war protest on C-SPAN, that is probably the biggest conglomeration of distractions you'll ever see <laughs> because it's not an anti-war protest. It's a lower college tuition protest. <laughs> it's a free this guy from jail protest. It's uh, you know down with Bush protest. It's bring back socialism protest. It's communism is great protest. Oh yeah, and we're and against the, the war too. Yeah. And 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 uh, it all comes together as a war protest when it's really a bunch of competing interests for FaceTime on television so that they can be placed on YouTube and they can tell their friends, oh, yeah, I was at a protest. <laughs> well, what did you protest? I don't know. I was just there. In, in the back, was there there's someone back there, Troy, with a comment? Or, please. Yeah. Yes. Nice and loud, please. Nice and loud. Mm-hmm. I think that is it all possible that, that everyone's vision of guilt and everything and things like that is just because it, it has American, exclusively American involvement mm-hmm. and that that is sort of possibly a means of distracting yourself from what's going on elsewhere. Pay attention to uh, other things going wrong, keep minds away from what's going wrong in other countries, that a war going on that hospital is messed up. The question is couldn't uh, these stories about uh, the returning GIs and about uh, the uh, domestic angle on the war really also be a form of distraction uh, taking us away from uh, the real issues in Iraq and and, uh, other places. Well, I think that is part of the real issue, though, because I think that when you send troops over to fight in a war that, you know, and and again, I've I've had arguments with lots of people, and I'll be very, very frank with you, with people that have said to me, well, you know, they sign up. They know what they're getting themselves into. When you sign up, you don't have a choice over where you're going and whatever. I beg to differ a little bit in that I think that there is a, a the social contract that exists between between the, the citizen and government that means that you, you're not sent in to, to, to frivolous uh, engagements, and that at least if you are, that you have the right to be taken care of when you come home uh, with this, these hideous injuries that people are getting. Um, I don't know how many of you followed uh, Bob Woodruff from ABC News, who just uh, has started coming out in the news more because he's begun his, his recovery. He's recovered uh, last year, I think. His, um, his was he riding in a, a, a mm-hmm. tank? Was that what it was? Mm-hmm. He was hit by an, uh, an, an IED. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Um, and a Humvee. And he's suffered some tremendous brain injuries, and he's highlighting the fact that that people are that our soldiers are getting better care in Germany to treat these new terrible brain injuries that, that can be treated here. That the healthcare that they're getting, we we don't have the services to be able to treat them. So we're not our system is not keeping up with the 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 trauma, the, the, the trauma. exactly. Oh, that's not actually no. Right. They say, no, you're not. Right. My family says, I don't think so. And so it doesn't happen. It's not a skill issue or a 
I apologize. The nursing, nursing. It's a bureau. It's a bureaucratic problem. That's what it yeah. is too. The delivery of health. It, the delivery of health in general. The, the government is, is built upon a bureaucracy which is inefficient, where you have competing interests working together, mm-hmm. and uh, or working against each other when they're supposed to be working together. Uh, so that's just one example. And the question about Walter Reed should be then. All right. I was watching on, on Hardball on uh, MSNBC, and I, and I spoke to Professor Fafleese about this. And uh, the, the commentator, Chris Matthews, who's left of center, was interviewing a Democratic senator, Claire McCaskill. And he was asking her, well, what are you going to do to fix the problem, Walter Reed? All of a sudden, she started talking about the problem that George Bush has is that he gives tax breaks to the rich. And he said, hey, focus. That's not the question. <laughs> That's not the question. And she said, oh, well, look, I'm with you on this. We're on the same side. And he said, but you're not answering the question. What are you going to do to fix the problem? And that's the problem, that, and use the, to be, not to be redundant, that's the problem that we have. Mm-hmm. We have all of these ideas that knowing full well, most of these politicians know that they cannot be put into practice because of the way our legislative process works. But it gets votes and it brings sympathy to one party over the other. In this last election, people said, well, it was all about war. All about war. Well, there were five or six Republican congressmen and mm-hmm. senators who voted against the war in Iraq. Three of them lost. So I guess war wasn't really a big issue with them. It's because they had the letter R next to their name. One congressman from Iowa, Jim Leach. One congressman from uh, Indiana, Hostetler, and a U.S. Senator, Lincoln Chafee from Rhode Island. They all voted against it, and they were proud to vote against it. And they had, and, and their, uh, I guess to their detriment, they didn't have any solutions either in how to fix the war problem. So using the war as a definition of saying, oh, this one's pro-war, this one's against the war, I don't think that really flies either because you can vote out anybody these days simply because of the label next to their name. Mm-hmm. But don't you think, though, that's part of the problem, uh, as Professor, Professor Shrek is pointing out, that the Republican Party hit, was gung-ho in favor of the, as were as were many of the Democrats, too, and that is sort of... This was sort of the, the um, you know, kind of reaping what you sow in, in essence, that um, even though they did vote against it, the Republican Party so firmly aligned itself with President Bush that kind of it's sort of coming back to, to bite him in the end. Even though I know that, again, I would agree that, that most of the Democrats kind of rolled over and played dead, too. Um, I mean, do you think that has some, some relevance, too? Well, the, our political party system, not to get off track, our political party system is decentralized, that our state and local parties have nothing to do with our national party, mm-hmm. and uh, for the most part. And our, nas- and our states, in general, our congressmen run solely to, uh, to get reelected and bring back uh, some nice little trinkets for their mm-hmm. districts. Uh, most people, however, don't recognize it as... You know, 435 individual congressmen. Right. They look at it as, well, my congressman's a Republican, so they all think alike. Please.
the comment or question is to clarify uh, what you think it is that young people know when they are uh, recruited and join the service and then what their status is while they are in the service. Mm -hmm. I, get, I, I completely agree with you. You're, you're correct in that I know that when you do sign up, in that, and again, I've had this argument with so many people, and they're all basically saying what you say. I just object to the idea of people sent, being sent off as cannon fodder um, in a conflict that seems to have no clear objective. And I think that, that the government, definitely you are part of the government machine. However, I think the government has a responsibility because you, you, the government is representing all of us, including you as, as a member of the government, I don't mean you, but, you know, um, to not misuse that. And I think that this was an example of, of an abuse of that. And I know probably a lot of people might disagree with me on that, but it just it, it makes me angry that if we're going to send people off, there's got to be a darn good reason why you do it. Um, that's, that's what I was basically saying. Nice and loud. What Cheney said when he was Secretary of Defense under uh, Bush one about why they stopped after they put Saddam out of Kuwait because they wanted to Iraq would have just torn the country apart and it would have separated if they tried to take Baghdad. And it's just I always thought that quote was kind of poignant for now. But um, then what he said about red and blue, there's a reason why it's the informed minority. Too many people just look at it black and white, so they're going to vote black and white because they're not going to look at issue to issue. Mm -hmm. Once again, getting off track. What I want to go back to is what you first said with uh, Iran and North Korea and so forth. But I, I always kind of, it didn't surprise me. If you're going to label somebody as the axis of evil and then, you know, you're going to invade one of them, well, the other two are going to get a little suspicious and get highly defensive, and then they're going to push their arms race mm -hmm. kind of a defense strategy. So it, it didn't shock me that they'd push nuclear arms. And I don't know why it would shock anybody. If you, if you label out three people and then you go and you massively invade one of them, well, the other two are going to start getting defensive, mm -hmm. too, because why, why wouldn't they? I don't agree with their methods, their tactics, mm -hmm. their, their means, but the, the, the question is about other, uh, er, other problem areas, uh, including... North Korea and Iran. Part of the axis of evil. Yeah, and the axis um, of evil. Well, the issue of Iran, that's what I said earlier, that, that our, our part of the mission was to sort of, uh, and there were so, again, there were so many, as this gentleman, there were so many re different reasons given as to why we were there. Um, well, there's a point when we first invaded, um, I just read, I, there's a book I'd recommend to you by Bob Woodward, who was one of the reporters from the Washington Post who broke out the Watergate story back in the 70s, um, and he wrote a, a three books about the, the conflict in Iraq, and the last one I just read, and I just forgot the name of it, which one was the name? The Chosen? Or I can't, I'll, I'll think of the name by the end of the, anyway, um, but his, his book is uh, basically saying how there was a point where the Iranians were scared. When we first invaded, it was such an easy victory. Um, Iran was pretty much willing at that point to talk to the U.S. and negotiate with them. And basically the Bush administration said no. 
we're not going to engage with you. We're not going to talk with you. We don't talk to, you know, terrorist regimes, part of the, the axis of evil. Well, we lost that. And now since our own credibility has been damaged over there, Iran has kind of been gaining some momentum themselves and is, is kind of poisoning themselves as one of those powerful um, members of, in, the, in the Middle East, nation states of the Middle East. And that was clearly not our objective going in there. And that, to me, is very, very frightening because now – all we can really do is saber rattle at Iran. Do we have the capabilities, given what we've done in Iraq, to actually go after Iran now? I'd argue no, because our own our own soldiers are, are stuck in this quagmire that is Iraq. And well, Jared, the the world the world not, not to say the world market, but the world stage has has changed in the last four years. You're going to have a, a different leader of of Great Britain pretty soon. You had a change of power in Spain. Uh, you had a change of power in the opposite direction in Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've had questions about the role that the United Nations should play. You've had questions about the effectiveness of the United Nations in a changing world that has, let's say, a security council inv- with countries that are no longer considered to be you know, world players such as France, while countries such as Brazil and mm-hmm. India and Pakistan grow uh, in population and grow uh, with their influence in South America and in uh, Asia and the Middle East, uh, respectively. So a lot has changed in the four years, and it's possible that many of the, the, the major players in the world stage, and including the United States, don't have easy answers to give uh, to these changes because – well, since 1990, we've basically been lulled into, uh, you know, a, a perpetual sleep because of the death of communism in, in Europe and in Asia. So this, what's been going on in the last four years has been a wake-up call to everybody in the world where we realize there's a different uh, set of rules that have to be engaged and there's a different enemy out there that cannot be identified by a country or by a leader. And therefore, it must be uh, discussed in different ways than we've done in the last 10 or 11 years. Mm-hmm. Darren and others, uh, I wonder if you talk a little bit more about this uh, concept of terrorism. Uh, is is that what we're involved in? Is it an entity? Is it is it the same kind of thing as totalitarianism? What, what is terrorism? Well, it's a what we're discussing here is is a, you know it, I don't want to say it's a decentralized group because they play themselves off as if they are a centralized group or the the name terrorism uh, indicates that we have a centralized group of people. But we have different factions all across the world who will uh, try to get their their means uh, identified or or, uh, received through fear or through any type of, let's say, means necessary. Uh, It is a form of of totalitarianism. It is a, a form of... Uh, bringing about well, you're you're trying to instill fear in people to gain what is necessary for your own uh, survival, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they a totalitarian government for uh, doesn't necessarily recognize uh, the features of culture or the features of our like let's say totalitarian uh, governments did not respect religion. The totalitarian government of, of Yugoslavia or, or wherever else would say, well, the, we are the religion. It's, the government is what's most important. So this group of terrorists, as decentralized as they are, have that same aspect. There's no recogni- recognizing of a country. There's no recognizing of leaders. There's no recognizing of the way society. Rule, society. Yeah. And that may be uh, a reason why it is so protracted in Iraq, there there is no civil society to build upon. Right, mm-hmm. absolutely. And to just say, uh, you know, please. Well, hasn't our definition of terrorism sort of changed? I mean, it used to be the IRA that was the Irish Republican Army who had terrorist acts in London and blow up a bus or um, different things like that. And ever since 9-11, they've been very quiet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. So mm-hmm. it's almost like we have changed our, our, our definition. You mean, you mean what, it, what is a terrorist? Yeah. Uh, who is it now? Yeah. And, and, and the, I was just going to say that that's, that's an interesting point. We'll have to talk about that okay. one. Um, but I think with all this, this highlights to me 
is that you cannot impose democracy from the top down. That does not work. Um, we talk about the American Revolution. Well, the American Revolution, we were aided by the French, but ultimately it was Americans that fought the American Revolution. Um, and that just to me is that's the bottom line. That was the bottom line for me four years ago. It's the bottom line for me today. That if it, unless it's coming from the people themselves, it's not going to work. And, and the question is do we continue to protract this, draw this out longer, or do we recognize it for what it is and say, you know, well, that there has to be a society. Uh, Mary, uh, mm -hmm. I, that's what strikes me. Mm -hmm. uh, I read a biography of Paul Revere. There's that famous story where he rode with a, a lantern trying to alert uh, the people. And uh, this biography pointed out that he wasn't just shouting out to farmhouses. He was alerting the uh, various leaders of uh, societies and clubs and churches in each of those villages and that he himself was a member of about 40 different uh, clubs and, and library groups and church groups and so uh, there was a society in place when the, revolu mm -hmm. the, the U.S. Revolution mm -hmm. uh, began and, and you build on, on that kind of thing but in, in this situation uh, I think we're we're finding it a tough go because there is very little civil society. Or that we can recognize ourselves. Yeah. Well, uh, or if it's even there. Um, what is it? Tim, you better? Yeah, we're getting, we're getting near the end of our time. I, um, Professor Zabib and I come from the uh, humanities departments, and one of the things that we're convinced of is that uh, in all of these things what's most important is language over years and years and years and years of civilization that uh, language is very important and maybe that's why uh, I'm being a little too slow here this this afternoon but it seems to me that, that one of the problems I've had in trying to understand all this is uh, the way that terms are used and, and they become kind of slippery uh, over uh, over the months um, Right now, there's a, a talk about a surge in Iraq. And what I've been uh, thinking about, and, and some of the comments this afternoon have reinforced my thinking, we really need a sensitivity surge. We really need a moral surge. And without some kind of proper language, without some kind of communication, uh, that it's going to be almost impossible to... Have anything positive come out of this? We, we have to be able to to have a conversation uh, across cultures and across uh, all kinds of uh, interests. I think some things that have to be said louder and more clearly than they have been said uh, have to do with uh, torture. I, I think we really have to hear from more corners that uh, torture is unacceptable. And I think we have to hear from more people, including uh, Muslims, that terrorism uh, in the form of suicide murder is unacceptable. And uh, I think that public executions ought to be unacceptable. And, and we're not hearing too much of that. We're, we're sometimes struck by the horror of these things, but we don't hear reasonable people who do benefit from exchange in civil society denouncing these things, uh, both here and overseas. And without that, um, I, I don't think we're going to get too far because a, a conversation has to occur uh, through some, some uh, language. And, and uh, right now, it strikes me that that was one of the themes of the novel, one of the problems in Oceana, that uh, that kind of conversation couldn't get going because people weren't, weren't standing up. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's, that the issue of, of um, Guantanamo Bay and um, inhuman and degrading treatment is going to come back and kind of bite us. It's, it's already biting us now, and it's going to come back and bite us back even further later. I think that when history judges, it, judges us, um, you know, I think we, we've lost a sense of, of moral imperative when we do engage in such activities ourselves. However, at the same time, I also recognize the flip side of the coin um, that and it's, it, this is a hard thing to, to really to really say, but um, when you have, I've had people say to me, when you've got somebody that wants to attack the United States, um, 
should you not employ any means necessary to find out what that information is. At the same time, again, it seems to me that you're, you're putting the band-aid on the bullet hole. If you go back and address the earlier problem, then perhaps you don't need to get to the point where you're doing that. And also it brings into the, the, the um, uh, point about intelligence and how, how much has our intelligence changed since 9-11 hasn't improved. Um, but either way, it's, 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 it's rather it's disturbing to me that you've got people that are sitting, that are languishing in prison, regardless of what they've done for five years, without giving them even a military trial. That really bothers me because that undermines our democracy and that un certainly undermines our moral imperative. We've lost that. We've lost the moral high ground. And in order to be able to wage a war, an effective war, you have to have the moral high ground. We don't have that anymore. And well, that both sides. There's, there's not much... Moral, moral sensitivity mm -hmm. coming uh, from the opposite. Darren, you or, or even uh, what was mentioned about just briefly about the intelligence uh, of the United States and, and there was faulty intelligence on the United States part. Well, many of these other countries that support the intelligence then have to look at themselves and say, well, what are we going to do to be better at gathering up intelligence? Because most of these countries rely upon the United States mm -hmm. for information. And, uh, and that includes uh, Great Britain. That includes Germany and France as well. We're mm -hmm. not talking about third world countries that rely upon the United States. We're talking about some major and key allies who rely upon the United States. You want to make a but that also seems to go back to the point, though, too, that if you look at the whole intelligence issue, and I don't mean to rehash what happened with Iraq, but that is part of the problem that they were looking for. When you're looking for a specific set of things that will fit right into your argument, you can find it. And when there's a lack of questioning um, at the highest level, this is what you're going to see as a result. And that's clearly what happened with the rock. People that went in that were offering evidence um, weren't really questioned, and it really wasn't debated. It was pretty much this is what we're going to do, and this is how we're going to justify it. Um, and that, to me, is also frightening because, it, you know, in a democracy, um, you want to have that kind of discussion, and you need to have that before, again, you ha show that willingness to send troops overseas to fight that war. Thanks to the library for uh, hosting us this afternoon. This is precisely what college students and college teachers are supposed to be doing. Uh, not all education occurs in the classroom, and the education that does occur in the classroom has to make uh, some sense in real life, or it's pretty worthless. So these are wonderful things. Thank you, Troy and others. Uh, and uh, we would be happy to reconvene at a later date to keep this conversation going. It's very important that we keep talking about these things. That is the hallmark of a democracy. That's the Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.